Please, don't be alarmed. We're not going to harm anyone. We're mutants. We're not what you think. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? They have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. There are forces in this world who believe that a war is coming. We're here to stay. The next move is yours. We'll be watching. Hang on to something. Welcome to Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series. Welcome to Mutant High. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. You talk pretty tough for a guy in a cape. Hosted by Jacob. I can't help being creative any more than you can help being a greedy capitalist. Stuart. I'm giving you genius and you're giving me jock itch. And Arnie. I can uh, melt glass and see through pantyhose. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of the series. Who will you stand with, the humans or us? Culminating in a weekend of release review of the newest X-Men film, X-Men First Class. We'll never, ever forget it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this. Today we're talking about Generation X, starring Matt Frewer and Finola Hughes, directed by Jack Shoulder. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob. Are you ready to be mind-raked? <laughs> <laughs> I am. I really am. Now, notice I said Jack Shoulder. Stuart, does that name ring any bells? Yeah, he made arguably the worst Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yes, Generation X, the worst Nightmare on Elm Street movie ever. <laughs> no, I just, when it came up on the screen, I'm like, I know that name from somewhere. He's the director of A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, which you can mm-hmm. hear our review of at NowPlayingPodcast.com in the archive section. He's just the king of shitty sequels. He did Wishmaster 2. Okay. If you could imagine being worse than Wishmaster is Wishmaster 2. I haven't seen any Wishmaster, and that is my wish. Well, now playing podcast listeners can know what an upcoming donation series is then. You could be the newbie. (laughs) Yeah, I could in some alternate reality. Well, alternate realities fit because we are talking about Generation X as the first movie of our X-Men retrospective series. Yeah, I barely remember this. I don't even know I knew this was an X-Men related movie or television show when this was first premiered. I knew it was because, as we mentioned before, I'm not too much of a comic book guy. I did have a phase of comic book collecting, and I was more into, like, Spider-Man and Hulk than I was into X-Men. All my friends in high school, you know, they all loved Wolverine and Punisher. I was more, you know, Spider-Man and Hulk. In college, I did go through a very brief X-Men phase, like two weeks, and that was right around the time Generation X started. So I knew about it. I knew of this TV movie coming on Fox. I think this is my first time seeing it. I thought I had seen it in broadcast, but watching it now, I remember none of this. I think what I saw was an ad for this, and that's it. So this is my first time seeing Generation X. Well, as the newbie, I don't know that much about X-Men. I've never read a comic. I never saw the cartoon. I know it only as the first chapter being our next movie. So this was a surprise 
<laughs> that we would start with the TV movie from the mid-90s that isn't even X-Men, really. But in some ways, I guess it makes sense. I mean, if you had asked me as someone that didn't know what X-Men was, I would say, oh, it was some 60s attempt to try and bring counterculture into the comic books and that it was all about people of different ethnicities and taking the freakishness of this young generation of its time and turning them into superheroes. And by the 90s, well, hippies weren't that generation anymore. They had to, if they were going to reboot it, have kids, right? It has to be about young people. It has to be about the school. So I guess they just had to make it a new generation, right? Well, in the 90s, the X-Men were huge. I mean, I remember going into comic book stores. Every X-Men had their own spinoff comic. You had a Storm comic. I don't know why. I don't know who bought the Storm comic, but there was this comic book just for the character Storm. There was just a glut of X-Men comics. And Generation X is one of those spinoffs. You know, the great thing, I guess, about mutants is you don't have to do origin stories. You don't have to have backstories. It's like, oh, they're born this way. They have a power. Let's do a story with them. So you had just as many characters as you wanted really and you just do, do spin-offs everywhere now at one point i mean x-men were the comic in the 90s you hear about the 90s the boom in comics i mean x-men was a huge part of that and so there was just tons and tons of spin-offs and generation x is one of those spin-offs why that was picked up for a tv show i guess it was to tie into the zeitgeist of the times of the 90s of grunge in seattle um even though neither of those play part in this series but uh there you go well Again, as you come in with the comic book perspective, Jacob, I come in from the mass media perspective. I remember in the 80s and early 90s reading in like Wizard magazine about how they wanted to bring the X-Men to screen. But the problem was they'd sold Wolverine to one film studio. They sold the rest of the X-Men to another and nobody wanted to make an X-Men movie without Wolverine. Then in the early 90s, there was the X-Men cartoon, which I actually watched on Saturday mornings on Fox because it was, you know, it wasn't Smurfs. It was a really nice teenage level cartoon. I've even rewatched some of it recently. It's just a really solid cartoon show. And that was such a hit that it sparked studio interest in X-Men. And Fox, the studio, bought the rights to X-Men and spent... The majority of the 90s trying to get that film to screen, going through a number of directors, going through a large number of writers, and eventually culminating in Brian Singer's X-Men, which will be our second podcast in our X-Men series. I guess not wanting to undermine the theatrical possibilities of their A-list stars and having the Fox TV network where, you know, soaps were the show of the day, 90210 was still very much at its heyday in 96, even though you'd think that would be past its prime, and all these other teenage shows just on all these different networks, Fox always tapping into that younger market. They had the rights, this kind of makes sense, and... For people who did watch the X-Men cartoon in the 90s, the star of that cartoon, one of them was Jubilee, who is one of the primary mutants of Generation X. So I can see from Fox, who was airing the X-Men cartoon, owned the rights to the X-Men movie, this property made a lot of sense for their market and for trying to build more of this X-Men brand for Fox. That said, what we are watching is a pilot for a TV series that was never made. This movie was aired once in February of 96. I guess it has the benefit of being during sweeps, but it was never considered again. 
Well, Arnie, let me ask you, because you are the multimedia superhero guy. In the 60s and 70s, a ton of superhero television stuff. And that seemed to go away. Was this the first real attempt to bring it back? I mean, like today you have Lost and Heroes and V and the whole science fiction type genre is really big. But back in the 90s, what, we had X-Files and that was it. Exactly. You had X-Files. And that is also a Fox show that this is very much trying to build off of. There was, as I can recall, exactly one superhero TV show that didn't make it. Nightman? No, that came later, didn't it? It was 90s. Nightman was in the 90s. There was a lot of syndication in the 90s. And if you look at syndication, there was also quite a bit in the late 80s, early 90s. Superman had three seasons in syndication. There was Jerry O'Connell in My Secret Identity. I'm talking network TV. Oh, okay. It was right after Batman came out, and everyone wanted to show an interest in superheroes. Oh, yes, 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 The Flash. Yeah, they had The Flash. Oh, oh, that's right. I've seen every episode, including the ones with Mark Hamill. Yes. I saw the pilot of it, and I had acid flashbacks of it watching this show. <laughs> it, it, it was it was bringing that back vividly, the unpleasant skin hive feel of that ugly garish show you guys are missing the biggest one lois and clark the new adventures of superman it was a huge hit for abc a couple years before this it was uh, okay i actually thought that was later i was getting my timeline you're probably thinking of smallville i don't know both superman i've never watched any superman so what can i say on tv yeah Lois and Clark was huge starting in 93, okay. and this came out in 96. And really, Lois and Clark stayed on top for a couple seasons. So it does make sense that between X-Files on Fox, Lois and Clark, maybe not The Flash so much, but it does seem like superheroes would have been something worth trying. I'm just not sure this was meant to be a TV pilot. It doesn't feel constructed like one. It doesn't feel set up and cast like one. And more importantly, when I saw that New World Entertainment was involved, I just knew what this was. You guys familiar with New World? No. I actually, I mean, I know the logo. They're a studio. I've seen a lot of their movies. I'm not able to tell you which ones, but I'm not unfamiliar with it. Yes. Well, I treated their logo like skull and crossbones. Whenever it was on a movie that, uh, in a horror movie, typically from the 80s that I wanted to see, I knew it would end up bad. Chud, House, <laughs> The Stuff, you name it. It's Roger Corman, guys. This is a Roger Corman movie studio. This is uh -huh. what his output was. And he had gotten into Marvel. This won't even be the last Roger Corman Marvel we'll be dealing with. And I feel like this much like Punisher and much like the Fantastic Four, was an attempt to be a semi-theatrical or at least a feature to be released on VHS. I think it ended up at Fox as a last recourse when they realized it was just not good enough to even package as a made-for-VHS movie. Well, I think you're right. I mean, there's swear words here. and Yeah, that took me by surprise. They dropped the F-bomb, yeah. It doesn't feel like TV to me. I know what TV is, and this ain't it. This is just shit. <laughs> this is just New World. Well, hold on. Now, they did make Hellraiser in their defense. I don't know that that defends anything, but <laughs> we'll have to cover that in another podcast. <laughs> I think you're right. Now, this was after... The Roger Corman Fantastic Four film. Fantastic Four for Corman was 94. This was 96. But yeah, around the same time, 
And an important thing had transpired in 96. Fox bought New World Entertainment. So they had just inherited all of the stuff lying on their shelf. And so it was just there. I guess, you know, it was probably someone's brainchild at Fox TV of being like, well, maybe we can sell this to kids. Maybe Generation X will appeal to Generation X. And they tried to put it on TV once and realized it was a no-go. It doesn't look or feel like a TV pilot to me. It just doesn't introduce the characters, the world. It feels like Corman. You know, I'm on the fence because I agree with you, and yet I think some things are set up in the dynamics between the characters that feel very first episode of 90210 to me. Like, things are brought up that never go anywhere here that do feel like this is going to be exploration for further character development. Oh, and I just thought they were plot <laughs> strands they didn't follow through on. <laughs> <laughs> Poor storytelling, but who's to say? Maybe it was going to be a character arc through the season. <laughs> I, I, I think before we get into any further in this, Arnie, we got to tell the people that have not been privy to Generation X what they're missing. Give them a plot summary. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to assume that none of our listeners have seen this. Good assumption. I I think it's a fair assumption. I'm going to hope none of our viewers have seen this. (laughs) And I hope they don't go looking for it after we tell them about it. I was at C2E2 back in March, and they did have it there at a bootleg booth. This is where we found it. It had a nice stolen cover. You know, but no, this is unavailable and there's a reason that we're going to get into. So here is your detailed plot summary that will hopefully hold your hand throughout this podcast as we explain Generation X. Before they were bitter enemies, psychic mutant Emma Frost and hyperactive scientist Russell Tresh, played by Max Headroom himself, Matt Frewer, were colleagues on a top secret government research project involving dreams. But Tresh went too far by trying to drain the brain fluid of mutants to achieve his goal of merging reality with the dream dimension, and so he was kicked out of the group. Five years later, Emma runs a school for young mutants who have been ostracized by society with her lover, Sean Cassidy. Not the 70s teen heartthrob, but an Irish mutant nicknamed Banshee because, well, he screams really loud. Early scenes involve the two recruiting Jubilee, a girl who can shoot fireworks out of her hands, and Latino gangbanger Angelo, whose elastic skin can stretch hundreds of feet. Meanwhile, Tresh has become a tool of corporations to implant subliminal messages in TV advertisements and video games, but he's still working towards the ultimate goal of planting suggestive thoughts in REM's sleep, and thinks Jubilee's brain might be the key to unlocking the dream door when he witnesses her power in his arcade. Jubilee and Angelo try hard to fit in with the rest of the kids at the Xavier School for the Gifted, but Kurt, a boy who can shoot lasers from his eyes and is developing x-ray vision, and his friend Mondo, whose body takes on the physical properties of whatever substance he touches, be it rocks or jello, only taunt the newbies. Then there's Snooty Monet, a mutant with such incredible strength, intellect, and healing properties that she comes across as too good for anyone. She's a super bitch, is what she is. I hated her. We got to talk about that. <laughs> You've got me thinking RuPaul. RuPaul's too good for her. <laughs> and there's Awkward Arlie, a girl so embarrassed by her overly muscular body that she'll only wear baggy clothes and won't let anyone touch her. Angelo falls for a non-mutant named Kayla while visiting the nearby town on break from school, but her jock friends only humiliate him, shoving his face into a banana split, and Angelo discovers Emma Frost's old dream machine and uses the device to visit Kayla while she sleeps. 
but this also causes him to bump into psychopath scientist Tresh, who eventually kidnaps Angelo and tries to drain his brain of mutant fluid. Emma opens the dream door so that she and the rest of the kids can fight Tresh in the dream web, or something. Angelo wraps his limbs around Tresh like a boa constrictor and throws them both off the dream web into nothingness. Angelo's then able to stretch his hand back so he can pull himself back to the others, but lets Tresh continue to fall, rendering him comatose in the real world. The bonded students return to the school and Emma dresses them in all new spandex superhero outfits that will never be seen again as this was not picked up for a series. All right, so that is Generation X. I'm sorry, this isn't Nightmare on Elm Street, Generation X. I just got confused with all that dream stuff going on here. Nightmare on Elm Street, I was thinking Freddy's Nightmares. Oh, it was someone's <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> this thing was filmed like Freddy's Nightmare. All right, comic book expert, I need for you to tell me what of this that I watched is actually on a printed page anywhere in this world. <laughs> Some of these characters appear in the comic. You have Professor X who leads the X-Men, these mutants that they're just born that way. They're outcasts of society. From time to time, the United States government passes these anti-mutant or these mutant registration acts, and they're basically a persecuted group. They're the next evolution of society. What Generation X was, it was this new group of kids. They, instead of being trained at Xavier School, you had Emma Frost and Banshee start their own school in Massachusetts where they're going to teach these younger kids because they were too angsty, I guess, to get along with the rest of the mutants in Professor X's school. So that was kind of the thinking behind the comic book is that they wanted something that would appeal more to the teenage crowd. It still wasn't very edgy, but I think what we would consider edgy, but you know. It, I just want to ask, Jacob, was the comic any good? You know, it went from 94 to 2001, which is a pretty good run for a comic series, seven years. So it sold, it appealed to some people. Right, it seemed to have written the positive vibes of the X-Men, but from what I can tell here, it didn't create its own iconic character. Well, no, it took Jubilee, who was already iconic from the X-Men. That's why they used her in Emma Frost and Banshee. I mean, they were already staples from the X-Men series, and they just brought them over kind of to carry the series while they introduced all these new characters. Isn't that the rule of the spinoffs? I mean, you got Joey going to L.A., or you've got Frasier going to Seattle, or you've got Emma and Jubilee. Of course, we're not spinning off from anything that's already been established. I mean, this is the first X-Men to make it to the screen. So, in large part, this is the first X-Men, the general public is seeing, including me. I still think that this is for the people who grew up watching Jubilee and Emma Frost on the X-Men cartoon in the 90s. They grew up, they're not watching cartoons. Here's the live action teenage version for them. I think the target audience knows Jubilee and this is her first real life incarnation, but they know her. In the Generation X, the movie here, they're still at Xavier School, which didn't make a lot of sense to me. Why and aren't there any Ah, other that was a huge thing for me because it, one of the few characters that I knew from not reading X-Men, but just knew from pop culture, was Professor X. He runs the school. There's a guy that's bald in a wheelchair, and he's the one that teaches the kids how to use their power. Like, without that... I was really confused. Like, who is this chick and the screamer? I, I just couldn't <laughs> figure out what they were doing. I thought Professor X had rolled away for the weekend and they were just like running it all themselves. But it didn't make any sense. It's a different school. Well, in the movie, it's still called Xavier School. So you get the feeling that he exists in this world or I got the feeling he exists in this world, but we just don't see him. 
You know what confused me even more is this mansion they're in looked familiar, and I got a Smallville flashback, and I knew from watching this that this was actually the same mansion they used in Smallville for Lex Luthor's home. But what I didn't realize till I hit Wiki is this is the same mansion they'd use in the theatrical X-Men films, too. This is, in all four films in our X-Men series, this is the Xavier Mansion. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Brian Singer, was he giving a nod to Generation X? Do you think that's why they chose that location? I'm guessing this is the only mansion in Toronto. (laughs) This is a cool place. I can knock a lot of things about this production, but I actually thought the school was cool. There was no Xavier. There's no other mutants. They never explained why. That was one of the things that confused me coming into this with the comic book background. Was this a different branch of the school? Was it the same school? I don't know. That makes a lot more sense to me because there's only six students. (laughs) What university can run on tuition like that? (laughs) I also got the feeling that there were supposed to be more students that we just hadn't met, like different ages, but that could be baggage I'm bringing into it. Again, this is a Corman production. Roger Corman, a brilliant businessman, but not an artist. (laughs) Certainly not a film cineast. He has been known for firing caters because they bought RC instead of generic brand cola. I mean, he's cheap. He does not hire extra people to be in shots. So you had this many characters in it, and that's all you're going to get. (laughs) And there is no frills, no extras, nobody in the background. And so it feels like an abandoned school with six students and two teachers. That's a great student-to-teacher ratio, might I just add. You can't find that in the school system today. And in the comic, it was a small group. Again, I just didn't understand. If you're not going to have this big school full of mutants, why would you just even give it that name? Because I know what Professor X is, and I don't know what Emma Frost is. I still don't know what Emma Frost is. (laughs) What the hell is that? Because they kept saying Xavier, Xavier. I thought it was Xavier Holland, you know, the happy hooker. I was just like, what the hell is is this well emma frost <laughs> did you not think of xavier holland i'm like that chick the only thing she's gonna teach you is how to tie a cherry stem with your tongue <laughs> Stuart, your lot is, is i mean is there anything she wears that is not lame and skin tight she does look like a dominatrix who likes white instead of black i gotta say even in this but she's more clothed here than in the comic art i've seen that's what I wanted to say. In the comic book, she <laughs> runs around in a corset and a pair of panties and thigh-high boots. Okay, so uh, this is modesty here. This yes, is- this was the nun version of Emma Frost here. Because <laughs> the kids get to the school, first thing she do, we have to strip search you and probe you. I'm like, I would be gone. I would not be staying at any school where the first thing would, of the order of the day would be a full-body probe from the happy hooker. Just say, Emma Frost origins in the comic she's gone back and forth between good guy and villain but her origins are in this thing called the hellfire club which was this anti-mutant club where everyone's fashioned after a chess piece and she was the white queen and apparently this is a very sexy form of chess maybe because the hellfire club historically is named after a gentleman's club so maybe they're tapping to that historical accuracy of the name of the club that's why she dresses that way that's her origins is she was a uh... mutant stripper But Jacob, I think this actually is really tied into some of the comic book continuity, even though they are at the school and you say they shouldn't be. They mentioned like the Hellions and that sent me right to Wikipedia. That's straight out of the comic book that Emma Frost was the leader of the Hellions and the Hellions died. And that's why Emma Frost 
is no longer evil. And they dropped that reference here. I was surprised that they went so in university with it. Yeah, you always get these little mentions here and there. I mean, you see it in the movies, too. Uh, they always drop those little Easter eggs for the hardcore fans. All right, so that's Emma. Who's the guy she's with? I think he stole my lucky charms. <laughs> He is pulling the best leprechaun accent I've ever heard. Or the worst. It's hard to tell, really. You know, Stuart, at the beginning, you said you thought the X-Men were this diverse group of people. You're pretty spot on in the 70s. It was very much a United Nation of Mutants where you had, you know, Wolverine representing Canada and you had a Native American and, you know, you had your Irish mutant and your Japanese mutant. This is where you get your Banshee with his awful, awful accent and his ability to scream really loud. It seems like uh, Ireland got the short end of the stick on <laughs> mutants, you know? Just really? This is the best you can produce? A screamer? <laughs> I really would think Emma's the screamer of the two. She's the one that doles out the screams. Yeah, I agree on that one, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the students certainly are a very diverse group here, too. I mean, in addition to being evenly split down the middle on male and female, you've got a Latino, <laughs> an African-American... And then a bunch of white people. <laughs> and uh, almost Asian. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Jubilee is an Asian-American. She is not white. In the comic, Mondo was an African-American. He was Samoan. So still the diversity there. Yeah, it just seemed very diverse. Yeah, no, it's an old formula that goes all the way back to Star Trek. And again, this feels like the roots of this are in the 60s uh, in the counterculture, that X-Men are a metaphor for hippies. And since hippies aren't relevant in the 90s, we have to make them Generation X, the disaffected whatever. I got a question because watching this, I'm now learning that this was a spinoff. I thought this might be a reboot that... They're instead of starting in the 60s, X-Men are starting in the 90s and that, you know, they could bring in Professor X later and that some of these characters would grow up to be X-Men. I thought for sure Kurt was Cyclops, but you're telling me he's not in any way a relation. Well, Kurt was made up for this show. So a couple of these characters don't have a comic book counterpart. And Kurt is a Cyclops ripoff. He's there to remind the comic book readers of Cyclops. Well, the other guy, Mondo, reminds me of Absorbing Man. So is he from the comics? Mondo is from the comics. I think X-Men introduced the one-trick pony into the superhero world. Yeah, we had characters like The Flash, who was known for just running really fast. But literally, X-Men, th these X-Genes, they give you one little power, and that's your thing. I mean, there was a character in the 90s, I I'm sure he's still around, named Longshot, whose mutant power is that he has luck. <laughs> That's why I've, I've had a hard time getting into the X-Men. I was, you know, of course, a big Wolverine fan when I was a teenager, but they're all one-trick ponies. They all have, you know, except Monet here, who has level five invulnerability and is also super smart and super fast and super strong. But typically mutants, they have their one gimmick and that's it. Like Banshee, he could scream really loud and that's it. I don't know how that helps fight crime, but there you go. <laughs> you know, Jubilee shoots fireworks out of her hands. Not the most threatening thing. And Skin is seems like a Mr. Fantastic ripoff from Fantastic Four or Plastic Man or any of a myriad of others. Well, Corman had just done Fantastic Four. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't use some of the same special effects to make this character actualized on screen that they did with Mr. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's talk about the character I liked most in this. Matt Frewer. M -m Matt Frewer. I... 
I have a sentimental feeling for Max Hedrum. He, uh, of course, was an icon of the era I grew up in. And I even did watch that ridiculous show that he had briefly on ABC. <laughs> I loved that show, and I've seen it recently. It holds up. It's actually better now. Yeah, it, it felt subversive. I felt like I wasn't smart enough to totally get it at the time. It was definitely more sophisticated than what I would have thought a Max Hedrum show would have been about. But I just remember the one show was about advertising, and it was kind of like the plot of this movie, that there was something subliminal going on, and people would watch ads, and their heads would blow up. It was called Blipverts or mm-hmm. something like that. But yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, I, too, have an affection for Matt Frewer. I know him as more than just Max Hedrum, although, of course, that's where everybody knows him from. But The Stand, where he was Trash Can Man, and he was recently in the great, great Dawn of the Dead remake as one of the many, many victims. He had a bit part in Watchmen as well. I I thought you were going to bring up Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. (laughs) That's the first thing, sadly, that I thought of when I saw his face. He's the neighbor whose sons get shrunk. Now, it wasn't until I hit IMDb that I had a repressed Matt Frewer memory, though. He was also, the same year as Generation X, picking up the Jeff Fahey role in the sequel to The Lawnmower Man, where he played Job. Oof, there's a retrospective I'm itching for. He's kind of playing the same role here. In here, he's kind of invading the dream space. In Lawnmower Man, he's invading cyberspace. In both cases, his body's in a chair. I, I got many Lawnmower Man flashbacks watching this before I remembered Frewer was in the sequel. No, this is awful. This is your favorite character, Ernie? He was the worst. Matt Frewer, you have broken my trust with you by ripping off Jim Carrey so brazenly <laughs> Thank and so you. badly in this <laughs> Horrible, horrible performance. I think where the Jim Carrey thing really hit me was in that odd moment where you've got Angelo going into the dreams of Kaylee, the townie who he likes, and he's stalking her using Emma's dream machine because he's so tired of getting picked on by the other mutants that he wants to escape into a dream world where he can be happy and he can have liaisons with the townie there. And then they dance in a extended dance sequence, and it suddenly Mm. hit me. This is the mask because of the type of music and everything. And then Matt Frewer shows up right after. And that's when I'm like, oh, Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised you had to have a moment to realize that. I, I, I just thought it was so blatant. I wasn't sure if the mask had come out at this time, but a lot of his scenes reminded me of the mask. The thing is, the first time I saw it, I just thought it was Matt Frewer doing Max Headroom again. You know, if it had been a different actor, I might have caught it sooner. But at first I'm like, oh, he's just playing the Max Headroom shtick again. And then the second time, I'm like, wait, he's put a slightly different spin on it with all the tongue out stuff and everything. He's a lecherous old Jim Carrey. Yeah, it was pretty blatant to me. I mean, this is what, 96? Yeah. Ace Ventura. No, it's a year after he did The Riddler, which, of course, was Jim Carrey's version of Jack Nicholson's Joker. I mean, they just keep dumbing it down. It's just like, oh, first we we start with Nicholson, then Jim Carrey, and now we got Matt Frewer, and it's just, oh, how far will it fall? Well, and the whole plot of twisting your mind, reading your mind so you could advertise to you, that's straight from Batman Forever, which came out the year before. Oh, that's true. That is true. Yeah, it, it just seemed like... Jim Carrey was a big deal then. Like you said, Batman Forever had just come out. He was popular. So let's go with that real bad over the top. And, you know, again, Corman makes popular things really, really cheap. So it is his M.O. You know, after Jaws, he was the one that knocked out Piranha. 
So after the mask and after Batman Forever, of course he's going to knock out a cheapie to whatever one he's holding the rights to. And it just happened to be this Generation X thing. I mean, this is just a bargain basement version of, yeah, Jim Carrey in the mask and Batman Forever. You know, which can we all admit we, we thought that was amusing when we were younger? I mean, I know I did. We all make mistakes in our past. I will stand by Ace Ventura. I will stand by it. I'm just talking about Jim Carrey in general. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I still like Jim Carrey in certain things. It depends on the part. I mean, not everything. But in general, no, I wasn't as in love with him as maybe the world was <laughs> at this time. And I certainly didn't need Matt Frewer to try and imitate it. I feel like... Yeah. All right. I think you guys are being too hard on Matt because in a movie full of dreck, he was the beacon of light. Now, I'm not saying that he's good, but he's meters above everything else around him. He's the worst thing about this movie. And this movie is all around bad. He's the best thing about this movie. And this movie is all around bad. <laughs> OK, can I, well, can I come down the middle and <laughs> and say he kept my interest in a movie that's all around bad. He wasn't the best thing, but he kept me awake during it. Okay. I mean, yeah, but at least when he's on screen, he has some clever lines, and he is really bringing energy to the screen that none of the other actors bring. He is giving his all to this piece of crud film, and that's more than I can say for anyone else here. You know, he has some great lines here. I'm he like, has no great lines, Arnie. He has no great lines. Reevaluate greatness. There's no great lines in Generation X. I love his delivery of some really badly written lines. I mean, if you like campy performances, then yes, I could see why his performance would appeal. But it's not great acting, Arnie. I'm not sure what you're getting at. I'm not saying it's great acting. I'm not saying this guy's up for an Emmy. The first time I've ever had to reference <laughs> Emmy on Now Playing. <laughs> but I just thought in this movie, he was the one thing I could hold on to. He was the mm. When he was on screen, I at least found something to be entertained by. And when he wasn't on screen, there was nothing here for me. I had the inverse reaction. Every time he was on screen, I felt like any chance this show had of finding its footing would go away. And maybe part of it is not Matt Frewer, but the character itself. I felt like this was a very poor choice as a lead villain against a new crew of superheroes. If you're creating Generation X and appealing to that generation, you need to give them something that Generation X was against. You need to give them the man. You need to give them... Well, but, no, Stuart, from- this is the perfect villain. He's the one that's sitting there brainwashing you. He's the one making sure the corporations stay in power and, and mind rape you and, and control you and tell you what to buy and what to consume. Although the corporations drop him and fire him and he spends a lot of time attacking Attacking them rather than Generation X. But I, I agree with you there, but I think for what we're given, it's Generation X enough. If someone is going to rewrite this, then yes, they could do a better job at that. But I thought, you know, what corporate America and corporate television thought would be a good Generation X villain, I think they tapped in. They didn't want to turn themselves into villains, so they had this caricature. I guess I saw him too much as of a wingnut and a lone gunman to really be a part of what I would call corporate America. He just didn't fit that to me. But you're right. I see your point now. He was applying his skills to put subliminal messages in video games and other things and and that he was all about insidiously trying to control the youth and make them do his will. Dreams were his ultimate 
goal in that path. But I just didn't like this whole dream thing. I just didn't like this whole <laughs> villain. I, I guess, honestly, what was happening for me was this felt like a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers episode. And I felt like I wanted some gorilla in a big furry suit to be the villain. I wanted a creature. I wanted a monster. I wanted something as cartoonish as the rest of this movie so that it would at least fit in here. I don't know. I don't even know the Mighty Morphin characters, but aren't there always like lizards on motorbikes and things like that? I mean, I just feel like they needed something like that. Well, Stuart, if you hated my favorite character, who was your favorite character? Um, <laughs> the gun is cocked and loaded, you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> and there's no way I can dodge it? Um... My favorite character. Your least unfavorite character. I feel like the two that we spend the most time with, that just by proxy that are the best, are Jubilee. Well, you call her Jubilee, but it's Jubilation, right? Jubilation Lee, but Jubilee's her code name. Okay. Jubilation and Angelo are the two who are the most sympathetic. They're mutants that are brought into this world. They're new. The rest of the school's kind of mean to them, and they kind of form a bond, almost a fraternal relationship. I wasn't quite sure where it was going, but they're the two that we like the most, I think. Yeah, I would say Jubilee does the best job at tapping into the Gen X vibe. I mean, she seems to have the most angst. You have characters like Mondo and Kurt, who seem more like the jocks. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Monet, who's the rich girl. You know, very much the Lisa Turtle of the group. (laughs) Now, you mentioned Angelo, or Skin, as they call him at the end of the movie, and I kind of liked him, but I think I was kind of carrying over some affection, not just because they're both Latino, but because they're both Latinos in kind of a boarding school situation where they're picked on by others. I was really flashing back to Carlos from Freddy's Dead. Okay. So that affection I had for Carlos carried over to Skin here, but... I can't say that I really liked Skin. There was not much to like. He comes from just the most stereotypical barrio ever. Well, it's not the barrio. I don't know where they filmed this, but it's not in L.A. I can tell you that. And It's the best barrio Toronto had to offer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the houses are, you know, two-story and painted. I, I, I was impressed with this barrio, frankly. <laughs> and then when they leave the barrio, they go to this huge, giant mansion in a piece of shit truck? They can afford this huge house, but where's the limo? Hey, did I mention Corman's budget? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's definitely not the, what is it called? The Blackbird jet or whatever that, that, that big military jet is that they fly around in typically. Uh, they've taken a step down. I was just impressed it wasn't a golf cart or a bicycle. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and more to the point, he's a computer expert. I love the fact that he apparently wrote code for the crypts. I mean, are you serious? <laughs> he's a hacker for a gang in 96? So Angelo's this great hacker, and he's using Cerebro. Now, I know what Cerebro is from the other X-Men films. Oh, really? This is not something they made up? Because I thought they made him a bro because he was, like, from the hood. Like, he's a hood that knows how to use the computer. So he's like, he's my Cerebro. I use my Cerebro to use Cerebro. Oh, my God. No. I I thought it was some Ebonics joke. I'm like, this is awful. No. That's not it. 
<laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, I feel glad. I actually have a slightly raised opinion of Generation X now. Slightly. <laughs> yeah. like, a, like, a, like a murmur. Was this this show's version of Kit? Is that what Cerebro is supposed to be? Is he supposed to be wisecracking and, and a character? Because the thing that finds the mutants for Emma, like that's what she uses it for. But I wondered if maybe it was going to talk and tell jokes and maybe fight with her and tell her to put on some less revealing clothing. It's basically a machine that enhances your psychic abilities. And Xavier used it. He developed it. And here, I couldn't tell if Cerebro was how she found him, if it was part of the security system. I mean, every computer in this movie is, like, from the 1950 IBM, like, six feet tall towers in here. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite sure what Cerebro even was in this film. What's really funny to me is, I mean, I realize this is, what, 15 years old now, but this was supposed to be state-of-the-art computer technology. (laughs) And it just looks so security station, 10-cent monitors everything it just looked just so cheap everything in this movie looked cheap though so what can i say it really did the production values even for a tv series are incredibly low too low to be acceptable it's i always hate it when people think oh it's a comic book movie so we need to have a color palette that's garish this is why i said freddy's nightmares the color is what just brought freddy's nightmares back where everything was lit with red and green lights right but yet it was all dark I think when people think of comic books, they think of the cheapest, smeariest ones that like where the ink runs on your fingers and all that. Well, yeah, it looks like shit like that. But I truly most comic books, they have a better printing process than what this movie looks like. It's just it's horrible. Like it's an ugly, ugly affair. You just wouldn't want to look at this. And even more, you know, you talk about having to go with the garish colors because it's a comic book movie. I mean, even some of the angles, they, they do the whole askew crooked tilted camera work straight out of batman 66 here hold on do you think that was intentional i honestly thought the level on their tripod was broken (laughs) because it wasn't rotated enough to be like batman in the 60s where it's completely 45 degrees it was like off by 15 degrees which is just enough to be a mistake and it was (laughs) always like that (laughs) <laughs> it's not like certain people had it. It's not like when Matt Frewer was there, everything got wonky, or when they went in the dreams, it was suddenly askew. Every shot was off balance. That's very true, Artie. I noticed that because I'm like, okay, here's the villains. That's why it's crooked. I'm like, okay, now here's good guys, and nothing evil's going on, and it's still crooked. So you <laughs> might be onto something. Here they are in a soda shop, and it's crooked. Here they are in the barrio, and it's crooked. <laughs> uh, I didn't notice it all the time, but I did notice it some of the time. And I guess I'm like Jacob. I just assumed it was their attempt to be comic book with the camera. Anyway, you slice it, though. We can all agree. This looks awful. If you guys are saying those are your favorite mutants, as far as the mutants go, the one that I actually liked most was probably Buff. I kind of felt bad for her self-consciousness. And that really was the only one that really felt like it had legitimate teen angst going on you know so many teenagers have body images as they go through puberty and she was always in the baggy clothes and things she's the one who i was kind of drawn in by well i was kind of wondering what was going on with her because early on when we first meet her they talk about how she's like this massive twisted bubbly muscles underneath her skin or something the way it's handled is weird arnie i agree with you it's a sympathetic character and it is the most gen x of the gen x but they keep teasing it like it's the big end surprise like what is she going to look like underneath? What is she going to look like? And, and they go into town and we get a, a shot of her changing from the back 
in the changing room and we see it's clearly a stand-in for like a bodybuilder or something. So we get the sort of idea and it all builds up to the fact that when we finally get to the end and it's time to show off the new costumes, ta-da, we see her in a spandex costume like Emma Frost and she just looks normal. <laughs> like I, I felt like that they wrote themselves out of that problem. That they kept implying that she had an ugly body and that she didn't know how to deal with it. In the end, they just said, nope, she doesn't have an ugly body. What's really funny about that is it wasn't until the third viewing that I realized that was buff. I honestly thought that was M the whole time because she's standing there like a supermodel. Wouldn't it be the perfect girl in the outfit? Yeah, I, I, I do Wait, wait, you confused the white blonde with the black girl? <laughs> <laughs> this pirated copy did not have very good color it correction. Wasn't that bad. <laughs> I liked what they were doing more with Kurt. I liked the fact that Kurt actually was kind of into it. He quote unquote copped a feel when they were playing football. It was like I kind of like her body, and I I think that was actually the better way to play it rather than showing her in a skin tight outfit and going, "Oh, good, she's hot." It would have been more like, "Nope, there's somebody for everyone," and and this guy could actually be into you, even though other people find you. Repulsive. I, I felt like that was a missed opportunity. Well, I haven't seen such bad casting of a fat person since the theatrical version of Grease, though, because there's that scene where Mondo and Kurt are talking and Mondo's like referring to her as chunky and fat. And then Kirsten was like, no, it's all muscle. If you'd gotten a larger girl who possibly could have gone either way, that would have gone a lot better. This girl is not fat. I know. It's clear. And yeah, I, I agree. They don't even pad her costume. She's wearing baggy things, but she doesn't have bulges. She doesn't have curves. She's clearly just a average sized girl in sweats that are nine times too large for her. It's an interesting storyline, though. I can actually see that being one of the more compelling things if it were to be a series to unfold. Her relationship with Kurt and her struggling with her body image. That could have worked. Jacob, earlier you said mutants were one-trick ponies. Here, it's like every mutant is a psychic because Emma Frost in class is telling them what's on the back of this card. And, like, half the students are getting it. You know, it just seemed like all of these... Students had so many powers. It wasn't just M with her level five invulnerability. It was all of them. And more to the point, Arnie, I felt like everyone had super strength. Like you have Arlie, so overly muscular that she can run 60 miles an hour and take down the big guys. But Mondo's also super strong. And Monet goes around at the carnival winning strength contest. I mean, like, oh, so they're all strong. Like what you're saying is correct. I didn't feel like there was ever any differentiation of their powers. They were all just all magical and could do whatever the circumstances needed at any given time. Yeah, that the guy that grew up in gang violence wherever he grew up, also was a brilliant computer programmer. I mean, that just, come on. For this retrospective series, I went back and I read a few of the first issues of X-Men in the 60s. And yes, each person had one power. And that's kind of, they were really a ripoff of Fantastic Four, I felt. You know, a blatant ripoff of Fantastic Four, where each person had one power, pretty much. But the key was, when each person has one power, working as a unit, they're unstoppable. Here, yeah, just like you said, Stuart, they're all strong. So what's the point of having a strong one? Mm -hmm. There's always this preference for the ones with psychic abilities. Professor X, that's his big thing is his psychic abilities. 
Emma Frost, very strong psychic abilities. Jean Grey, who we'll get into in the the real X-Men movie, not this TV travesty. (laughs) There's always that preference because those are the ones, you know, they could do anything with their mind. And and I think they were just somehow they wanted to make it like every mutant could adapt and have that psychic ability. Like there's this whole storyline, you know, towards the end of the movie, I get really confused, is where every human, if they just practice their psychic abilities enough, they develop the X gene and they become a mutant because that's what happens to Tresh. Like, I felt like they were just taking some liberties here. Like, well, we're all eventually going to be mutants. We're all eventually going to be, I guess, psychic mutants. And we all just have to work our way up through there. And part of that is getting super strength. Like, yeah, it's it's kind of a mess what they do here. And that was my question was, was Tresh a mutant or not? Because his whole goal is in order to unlock the dream world is he has to be able to tap into the penal gland of mutants and get their secretions. And that's his whole obsession is carving into their heads. But if he was a mutant, he could probably drain himself, right? Well, first of all, he said to Skin when he had him tied down that it's basically going to kill him to get to that penal gland. He's got to dig through all the rest. But second, it is said Tresh is a human. Tresh is a normal, everyday human. But they say at the end, he spent so much time in the dream dimension, he developed the X Factor. Now, I'm reading a lot into this. I'm guessing the X Factor is what makes a mutant a mutant. Well, Mm -hmm. their genes make a mutant a mutant. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, in this context, <laughs> even in this movie at the beginning, it has the definition of mutant and it talks about genes. Yeah, so- and they literally say that. I wrote down the definition, and their definition of mutation is the illegal genetic condition first apparent in puberty caused by the X factor located in the pineal gland of the brain. So, oh, yes, okay. they literally just flat out tell us that the X factor is the juice in the mutant's brain that can be tapped to unlock dreams. So even better than being a mutant is someone that can be a dream controller. So, yes, but Tresh ends up being both, theoretically, because he spent so much time controlling dreams that he became a mutant. Okay. Now he can take acting classes. (laughs) I still think he was doing what was required of him here. He brought more to it than anybody else brought to the game. Eh, It's like watching your grandpa still trying to dance. It was like, yeah, you were so hip and cyber savvy as Max Hedrum, but years later, you just look like you're going to fall over and break a hip. Like, you were trying to be Max Hedrum without the editing, and it's just, oh, I thought it was embarrassing. What about the dream web? You know, when you think of other dimensions, I don't normally think of something that I don't know. What was this? This looked like out of a bad 80s music video. No, Arnie. That's awesome in an 80s music video. Don't call it bad. (laughs) It's awesome. It's cool (laughs) in the 80s. However, this is 96, and this is not cool, and it's not Generation X, meaning our generation. It's just some old effect they had lying around that they just repurposed, and it's incorrect. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. (laughs) This is not the way to realize what what's it supposed to be the internet of dreams the nexus where everyone goes when they sleep i i don't know what it's supposed to be but yeah it's a cheap catacombs from a yes album i mean that's (laughs) that's what it is well speaking of that dream web here's what i don't get is all right so trash goes into the dream web to go after jubilee he wants jubilee's brain because he knows she's powerful enough in the dream he encounters angelo then Tresh is separated from his body, so he's trapped in the gene web and, like, manipulates Angelo by saying he's going to rape his sister? Is that what he said? He's going to mind rape his sister every night, yes. His, his like, 12-year-old sister. 
I played that back to make sure I'm like, is that the word rape? And of course, bootleg, no subtitles. <laughs> yeah, I was sane enough to only watch this film once, but that is a scene I had to go back a couple times <laughs> to make sure. Yeah, when it has to do with like pedophilia, it gets really uncomfortable. And the little girl, the actresses, they were the big grin on her face. It's like, yes, migrate me. I'm like, whoa, this is this is wrong. Well, that actress is horrible. Her one other scene in the whole movie is when Angelo's saying goodbye to her and she grabs his hand. It ends up being tugged down the street as he's driving away. I couldn't tell from looking at her face whether she was doing it to hurt him or because she didn't want him to go. So they just had the wrong actress in the part. That's true. I couldn't tell if she was supposed to be horrified or supposed to be enjoying the fact that he was screaming in pain or what was going on there. I think she just thought Matt Frewer was a very silly man. (laughs) So if you didn't like the dream plot, the other side is the school drama. And we see Jubilee and Skin take it. And yeah, we mentioned the naked body scan is the first thing that happens to them at the school. I don't even care why they were being naked body scanned. What I care about is why was the scene part of the movie? Was this supposed to titillate me? I mean, I almost felt as bad for Jubilee in this scene as I felt for Jodie Foster in The Accused. I'm wondering if there wasn't some nudity here that made it on the editing room floor when it had to be put in for TV. Well, we still got the F-bomb in the version we saw. You know, if there was nudity, I think we would have seen it. Yeah. All I could think of is this is Fox, and Fox had the reputation, you know, married with children, uh, the Simpsons way back when that was edgy, in living color. I was taken back. I don't know if some of the stuff made it into the television edit, but there's the line, damn, nice beaver, when they're, like, faking that he could have x-ray vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, there's masturbation jokes. I just thought, oh, it's Fox. They kind of pushed those boundaries back in the 90s. So that's what I thought was going on with this kind of weird faux lesbian mistress on young teen nudity scene here. Well, we got the bootleg, so we don't know what actually aired on the show. I'm guessing some of that content did not go over the air. This is way too crude for TV. I think think even for Fox TV at the time. Your point's valid. Fox would be the most likely to go there. But when Matt Frewer like holds up a saw and says, have you ever been circumcised? I just, I don't see that getting past the TV censors of any stripe. That's just not going to fly on TV. We saw a bootleg and I think we saw what was going to be a theatrical film before Fox tinkered with it when they inherited it from Corman theatrical when's the last time corman had a theatrical maybe direct to vhs but i don't know about theatrical well that's what i meant by theatrical yes i mean a feature i feel like the show if it were a tv show if we're looking at this as a potential tv show the relationship stuff you're talking about should be the core of it that's the core of any tv show about teenagers is their angst kurt loves arlie but she's all weird about her body And Jubilee and Angelo kind of have a thing together, but Angelo met this other girl that's a townie that's normal, and he wants to romance her. That's the kind of stuff I would expect in a TV pilot. I really wouldn't expect the villains to overshadow that kind of stuff. I thought it was about half and half here because there was so much of the fighting the townie stuff, and it, it, it never ties into the original plot. It never goes anywhere. It's never satisfying. There's all the stuff about Kurt developing his x-ray vision and shooting the lasers and all of this inner fighting. 
none of it pays off here. And that's why it really does feel like a TV pilot to me is because it seems like this is the type of 90210 drama or to take it, you know, not all that many years later, just four years later, we would have the same kind of crap going on on Smallville. Uh, I think you're really doing a disservice to Smallville, and I've never even watched it. I'm willing to bet it's better than this. It is better than this, but I'm just saying it's that same type of thing where you've got all of this interpersonal drama interspersed with a villain of the week, a superhero. If this was a movie, wouldn't, like, the ending be the townies turn against the mutants and then Tresh becomes such a threat to all the townies that they accept the mutants coming in, the mutants save the day, and the townies accept them, and they try to work together to repeal that anti-mutant law, registration law. Like, isn't that how the movie would go? There's never any threat to the townies from Tresh. Only the mutants know about him invading dreams. So it's totally disconnected here, the the towny stuff versus the supervillain stuff. Well, I really admire you guys as not calling this out as bad screenplay writing (laughs) and seeing it as, no, this is a more thought out, larger scope storyline that would spread out for hours and hours beyond this. I just think this is bad, schlocky, made for VHS writing. And I really feel like this will be decided when we get to Corman's Fantastic Four and Corman's Dolph Lundgren Punisher. So. Angelo, to save his sister from mind rape, breaks Tresh out of minimum security prison, and then Tresh kidnaps Angelo. Now, how does this work? Angelo is super powered and can stretch and bend. Matt Frewer has been in a coma for a few days. He's not even a mutant. And he captures him? That's it? I don't know. Maybe they were just afraid that he would make him fart when he woke up. For the listeners, we need to explain that. There's a scene earlier. What gets Matt Frewer fired and thrown into prison is the fact that when the man, the company, Corporate America, is listening to his ideas about how to control people through their dreams, he goes, I've got it already tested. I came to you in your sleep last night, and I implanted the idea that you were all fart in synchronicity at 10 o'clock. And, of course, you know, the second hand comes. I didn't realize that was a subliminal suggestion. (laughs) Thank you. I I thought it was a physiological reaction (laughs) to stimulus. Like, I didn't think that I could make my – I mean, I know you can do that with yawning. Like, you know, that you plant that idea, you yawn, and then you look across the room, somebody else will yawn. But farting? That's a new one. I just would like to think that that is where Christopher Nolan's idea for Inception was spawned. He's like, (laughs) wait, someone gave everyone the idea to fart at the same time. I got it. I got it. (laughs) That Nolan is such a ripoff. And the whole idea for Batman probably came from this, too. But for whatever reason, Angelo does end up the captive of Matt Frewer, and he's going to drain him of his pineal gland and have the fluid to control the greens forever. But we finally put it together that Emma Frost is a long associate of Matt Frewer and that she was in his dream program when he was first dabbling with all of this, and she can open up Work with me here. A dream door? I I don't know what happened at this point. (laughs) All mutants, apparently, again, because powers are meaningless in the TV world, all mutants have the ability to travel interdimensionally. And regular humans have to be asleep to go to the dream world. But mutants will be able to follow the light into the dream world. And Emma, being a telepath, is able to show her fellow mutants the light. And so that's why Skin can project himself 
all mutants are telepathic. All mutants can travel interdimensionally. They just have to learn to do it. And that's what Emma is teaching them. So Emma, being the most powerful of the mutants there, is able to use her power. She can't move when she's doing it. She has to stay in the real world and open a doorway that allows the other mutants to travel into the dream world. Now, I have a problem, though. Why the hell do they want to go to the dream world? Angelo isn't tied up in the dream world. Angelo's tied up in Tresh's crappy apartment. Why don't they just go to the apartment? So I thought the whole Tresh doing the lobotomy on Angelo was some projection to trick Tresh by Emma Frost because he's wearing a kimono when he's doing it. So you're telling me that was the real world? I was wondering about that, too. What's with the mono? Yeah, that was the real world. That makes even less sense. You want to know what makes even less sense still is the reason they get to Tresh is because Tresh is like, I'm going to kill you in the morning. But first, I'm going to go to sleep. (laughs) Yeah, it was like the worst motivation. You know, there's always the villain always has to delay what he's going to do somehow. Usually it's a big monologue here. No, he's going to go to sleep because he's been comatose for a week. That would have been the time to open the dream door, I would have thought, when he's actually in a dream. But, hey, whatever. No, that's what they do. They That's how they get to Tresh. It's because he's asleep. If Tresh had, had like, had some no-dos... So he was asleep in a he dream. He was, but Angelo wasn't in a dream. Angelo was sitting in a room. I guess Angelo fell asleep, too. Well, I'm going to die in the morning. Good night. But... They could have just gone to Trash, use Cerebro, since Cerebro tracks every mutant, find Angelo, go there, and save him. Isn't that what superheroes do? I think they just wanted to work back to the plot thing that they started from the beginning, that Frewer and Emma were part of this dream program, and that they both knew how to manipulate dreams. Like, I mean, they make a big deal of setting up the fact that he knew someone who could open dream doors. Okay, yes. But what I'm saying is it doesn't make any sense, though. No argument. Can't (laughs) defend that. I mean, does it not make sense if Superman was the hero here? Would Superman go through a dream dimension to catch this guy asleep? Or would Superman fly to the apartment, bust through the wall, and save his friend? You're right. It doesn't make any sense. I was totally lost by this point. What was going on? I didn't care. You know, they're all stepping into a remake of Dream Warriors. Let's just let them battle and get over with. And why would you want to fight him on a dream plane if your powers are in the real world? When you go into the dreams, this guy can apparently do stuff and turn into a giant. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he could be superimposed on a green screen. One of your favorite in climax conceits. (laughs) At least it was still Matt Frewer. He didn't turn into, like, a stop-motion puppet. Uh, They didn't have a budget for a puppet. They would have made it a puppet. (laughs) So Emma somehow does show up there, even though she she can't be there because she's opening the door. Because she's going to sacrifice herself, grab him, and fall down some vortex forever. It's an endless vortex. Now, I don't know what that means, but whatever. (laughs) Well, it's a different dimension. That's right. Exactly. Got it. Instead, Angelo wraps his stretchy little appendages around him and does it himself. And again, it makes no sense because if this is a dream dimension, I don't know. Maybe I'm bringing in too much Nightmare on Elm Street. God knows this movie keeps trying to rape it anyway. But I would think dreams are a malleable place that don't really exist and don't follow the rules of, you know, falling. But all right, they beat Matt Frewer by throwing him off a cliff and then through his stretchy arm power... Skin comes back up and ta-da, they're all happy and can go back to the real world. Right. Matt Frewer has left comatose in the real world and they can go back and put on spandex. (laughs) That's about the size of it. And what about that outfit? If this had been picked up as a series, is this what we want to see every week? (laughs) 
I don't know. Does it look like outfits in the comic books? I mean, it looked like superhero outfits, but... No, I mean, Generation X, the comic, and tapping into the Generation X feel, you know, they, they were more into just wearing their own thing, kind of this faux grunge look, you know, with lots of uh, rubber bracelets like Jubilee War and jean jackets and that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Well, maybe they'll, they'd have a flannel version of it. <laughs> All right, so I guess this leaves... <laughs> I wonder. Jacob, Stewart, do you recommend Generation X? Jacob. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, there's actually moments that I enjoyed of this film, but the ending, that's what really lost it for me because it stops making sense. I, I kind of could go with this. I didn't accept it as a Hollywood movie. I was watching this as, oh, if this was on television in the 90s, would this be something I'd be into? Yeah, I was kind of digging it, but it's a mess of a story. It just never really goes anywhere. You get all these little plot threads that are just hanging. I mean, really, there's a line from this film or this television show, which I think is pretty relevant. Uh, only one thing you could do at a time like this, crack a 40. And, and really, I think that's the only way to make it through this film is to crack a 40 and go through it drunk. Not recommended. Stuart? You know what? Obviously, it's not for me in any astral plane or dream world. What I was trying to do as I was thinking about it is, is can it be saved? And I actually believe the problem with Generation X is they were pitching to Generation X when they really ought to be going after the Millennials. They could have had a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers ripoff out of this if they had made it more campy, more kung fu, a lot more action, a lot more silly. With these cheap production values, it's the only way to play it. This should have been on Saturday morning, and it should have been for people 10 years younger than me. It was not meant for me. It was never meant for me, and no one our age should watch it. But would little kids have liked it? Yeah, if they had made it the right way, they would have. But as is, it fails everyone. It's a strong not recommend for every generation. And I am going to judge this as a TV movie. I couldn't possibly recommend it as a movie. You know, this is even worse than Man Thing, okay? As far as... Oh, no. no I, I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't go that far, Arnie. Well, I'm saying as far as production value and just overall every aspect. I mean, Man Thing felt like it had a bigger budget and a professional screenwriter. This feels amateur. They had real accents in this film. <laughs> they did have real accents. That said, even judged with uh, already truncated criteria and going in just with low expectations, judging this as a straight to VHS or straight to TV movie, I still can't recommend it. I mean, in the end, what I always come down to with now playing recommends and not recommends is, do you enjoy watching it? I said I watched it three times and it's not because I enjoyed watching it. It's because I so didn't enjoy watching it that I would focus on anything else while this was on. When Matt Frewer was there during some of the scenes, I would be somewhat engaged by his performance. We've already hashed that out. Others disagree. But for the rest of it, during all the teen scenes, it just it couldn't hold my interest. And it's barely over 90 minute running time was still far, far too long for my tastes. No, do not recommend. I find it interesting on an academic level to see where some of the characters we're going to see in future X-Men films started in this kind of media. But no, not, not, not recommend. 
Even if you did, I don't know how they would get a hold of it. We did. Fortunately, well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's on the dream web. Well, Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me in this dream dimension to talk about this alternate dimension of X-Heroes. I thank you a lot because I know that every other movie in this X-Men franchise is going to look a hell of a lot better starting from this vantage point. It's only up from here. So thank you, Arnie. I'm going to like them all a hell of a lot more than this. We have started at the very bottom. I'm quite confident no matter how the new movie turns out, they cannot make a movie as bad as this. And if you want to hear more non-spandex clad now playing reviews, don't forget, for donors who donate $10 or more, our donation drive is still going on through Memorial Day of 2011, where $10 or more donation, we will show our appreciation by giving you the Jaws podcast series that Stuart Brock and I recorded, and the latest one, Deep Blue Sea, is now mm-hmm. released. We're giving you Jaws and the finger. <laughs> And it's our way of saying thank you. We're not selling the podcast. It's just our way. It's like the PBS pledge drive. This is our digital tote bag. And if you go above and beyond, and we're not saying how much, Poltergeist is ready to roll as well. So you can hear Stuart Marjorie and I go to the other side and talk about all the different ghosts and specters and cane that is there. Meanwhile, next week, we're not reviewing Thor, right? I know that that's opening next week. And I know that that's Marvel, but that's not the next one in this series. No, what we're doing is we're going to hold off because really, isn't that just Avengers Part 4 with Avengers Part 6 being Avengers? I don't know what that means, but I take (laughs) that to mean that it doesn't mean that I'm going to pay 3D money to see it next week. No, we will be reviewing Thor next year. (laughs) (laughs) Not that we plan too far in advance or anything, but we're going to save that for when Avengers hits theaters. That's what our whole Marvel movie retrospective is building to, is the ultimate crossover, Avengers 2012. And Thor is very much a part of that whole series of movies, because there's so many characters that cross over from Iron Man to Incredible Hulk to Thor to presumably Captain America, all leading to Avengers. We're going to do that all as the climax of our Marvel comic movie retrospective next year. So I imagine all of our listeners will see Thor. Come and tell us what you think of it on our Facebook page, but we're not going to tell you what we think of it till 2012. But next week, we will tell you what we think of X-Men, the Brian Singer film from 2000 that completely eradicates Generation X from Generation X's minds as we build towards this summer's second of three Marvel comic releases, X-Men First Class. Talk to you guys then. Today's attack was only our first salvo. Our war will rage. Your cities will not be safe. Your streets will not be safe. You will not be safe. And to my fellow mutants, I make you this offer. Join us or stay out of our way. Thank you for listening to the now-playing X-Men movie retrospective series. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. Part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Hope if you came down this road, you would like what you found. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another X-Men film, leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's X-Men First Class. The professor trusted you were smart enough to discover this on your own. 
He gives you more credit than I do. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, and Kick-Ass, as well as reviews of other series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, Tron, and many more. And individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. This is also crazy sounding. You said the same thing about my other ideas four years ago, but everything I said I could do, I've done. And now you're a chicken millionaire. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. Show's over. Show's never over for us. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Me and my kind. The Brotherhood of Mutants. Links to our social media pages are found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Do I look like a man who exaggerates? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you have any decency? Or just sense of gratitude? Or do the guy have needs? I think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru? I'm out of here! I'm gonna hit the big time! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. The whole world's gonna hell, you're just gonna sit there? Let's go. Now Playing's X-Men retrospective series is edited by Alex, Carlos, and Arnie. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. The Marvel characters and all the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. Oh, you get the point! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Apparently we have some issues with authority. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Class dismissed. Did we just lose the feed? Are we still alive? Today we're talking about Generation X, because we are members of Generation X. So let's talk about growing up, shall we? I'm kidding. I don't even want to know who... I know that strip clubs already have people railing against them. How bad was this anti-mutant club that the best front they have is to piss off all the parents in the town? Yeah, wouldn't they do better to open up a library or, I don't know, a, a maid service? Like, something <laughs> wholesome, you know? I, yeah, I agree. Not a great cover if you're trying to be under the radar. It was the 80s. <laughs> Comics were supposed to be dark. Strip club works. But yeah, I watched this movie a couple of times for this review I, because – God! <laughs> because once isn't enough to get all the intricacies. Because I was so bored out of my fucking mind, I couldn't follow it. And I kept wondering why things were happening. I don't think that has to do with boredom. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. But I never thought of Fox as that edgy. As far as sex goes, if I was looking for racy TV shows in my teenage years... Did you never watch Married with Children? It was... Other than Kelly wearing some short skirts, it was never like this. I'd go to USA and watch Silk Stockings or something like that, you know? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's very sad.
<laughs> oh, Arnie, going to silk stockings for your oh, titillation. <laughs> First we had duck titties and now that. Yeah, I guess the boy's got to do what it's got to do. But <laughs> Now, this, this movie, there's all this stuff about what's his nuts, the guy with the eyes. Per- this will be decided when we get to Corman's Fantastic Four and Corman's Dolph Lundgren Punisher. Oh, boy, you're really making me look forward to this summer. <laughs> and this is my idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, who did what to who? <laughs> Didn't we just argue for the Hollywood movies? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I lost. My mutant power wasn't strong enough. Arnie's mutant power to eat everything Marvel <laughs> is uh, amazing. I'm the Galactus of now playing. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but yes, you are. <laughs> All right. Um. I don't know. Maybe they were just afraid that he would make him fart when he woke up. <laughs> For the listeners, we need to explain that. There's a. Go ahead. Explain that. <laughs> I can't explain it. I, I don't know what happened at this point. <laughs> I got this on the third viewing. <laughs> oh. Well, so everyone can benefit from my just asinine rewatching of this movie. I knew you would do this already. That's why I didn't go back and try to understand it. <laughs> Next time, I'm not even going to watch the movie. I'll just let you <laughs> tell me what it is. I'll watch it one time for all three of us. Yeah. Well, I was the one tasked with the plot summary. I had to. Let's just let them battle and get over with. Please. Let's get this <laughs> podcast over with. I don't want to talk about this movie much longer.